Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we're continuing on with the book of Alma, chapter 2. When we left off, we saw a tentative peace following the execution of Nehor. He was killed, but his ideas have continued. Priestcraft has become something of a movement among the Nephites at this point. Now, remember, when we hear priestcraft, we can't just think about money. In fact, the evil of priestcraft really isn't even about the person who is, to quote Nephi, setting themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. Obviously, that's not great, particularly when you have turned the gospel into your own marketing tool. But that's a relatively isolated problem. The real problem with priestcraft is what it does to those who labor in Zion who are perishing. Take Noah and his priests. They were committing all kinds of wickedness, but the real fallout was the impact that their vanity and selfishness had on the community as a whole in generating a system of inequality. Compare that to the church that was founded at the Waters of Mormon. Alma refused to become a king because he wasn't going to use the church to create a system that put one man above another. So we have one group of Nephites at this point in Alma II committed to a system of caring for each other and using prosperity to care for the poor because of their belief in the suffering Messiah preached by Abinadi. We have another group of Nephites committed to elevating themselves above others. So far, there's still national unity, but we are only four years into the new Nephite government, the reign of the judges, and it's about to get complicated. I've said before that when Mormon gives us a cue like he did at the end of chapter one, we have to pay attention to it. That's part of reading with the text. Remember, he said, there was much peace among the people of Nephi until the fifth year of the reign of the judges. The natural question that follows a statement like that is, well, what happened after that? We get our answer right away in chapter 2. At the beginning of the fifth year, we meet a man who is after the order of the man who slew Gideon by the sword, that is Nehor, and this guy's name is Amlesai. Amlesai is good. That is, he's sharp, he's engaging, he knows how to generate buzz and play the crowd, so much so that his followers want him to be their king. How does somebody get that kind of momentum? We can speculate what he may have promised them, but it'd only be speculation. But I think this authoritarianism doesn't just come through promises. It has to go deeper than that down to the level of identity. You have to reinforce people's image of themselves. We can imagine that since Amlesai was after the order of Nehor, that his message was pretty similar. So before I read Nehor's message, I want to keep this question in our minds. What is the image that this could be reinforcing? Here's Alma chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. And Nehor had gone about among the people preaching to them, that that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he also testified unto the people 
that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice. For the Lord had created all men, and had also redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. What's the message there? You've arrived, right? You're righteous, right? Elevate your priests and teachers, because the wealthier they are, the more success they have, that's all just a reflection of your righteousness, even if it's at your expense. This is the same story that Noah's priests told his people. Now, there's something else that we need to keep in mind here. We need to remember that the Nephites are a multi-ethnic society. At the very least, there are ethnic Nephites and ethnic Mulekites. Ethnic Nephites are also made up of Josephites and Jacobites, Zoramites and Nephites. It's difficult to know if or how any of these identities are influencing these movements. The Mulekites are descendants of the kings of Judah, and if Amlicite and his followers are Mulekite, that may have something to do with their desire to establish a Mulekite as a king. Another interesting note is that Nehor is a Jaredite name. Nehor could have had Jaredite ancestry, or he could have taken that name as a way of trying to follow in the Jaredite tradition. Mosiah translated the Jaredite plates, and that could have influenced the order of Nehor. I know that I'm putting out a lot of questions here without a lot of answers, and it might not seem like it matters at all, but I think it's helpful to remember that things are always more complicated and layered than what we think, and that people have reasons for doing what they do. There's a reason that Amlicai has followers, and that those followers are supporting him with the kind of energy that we'll see in the next few chapters, and it's not just that they're terrible people. In fact, if we remain curious about their reasons, we might even see a little of ourselves in them and see something that we may need to change. Getting back to chapter 2, one of the scariest things about the Amlicite movement is that he actually has a path to power if he can get enough people on his side. Just as the reign of the judges was established by the voice of the people, Amlicite can be made king by the voice of the people. The reign of the judges was literally designed to protect the church, but if it falls, the church is once again vulnerable to a hostile king, similar to Noah. We're just in the fifth year of this new government, and there's already an existential crisis. Well, the question is put to the people, and enough of the people reject Amlicai as their king. In verses 8 through 19, we learn that the Amlicite followers don't accept that outcome, and they consecrate Amlicai as their king anyways. By establishing a king, they've effectively created a new nation, and as nations are wont to do, they prepare themselves for war. The Nephites respond by getting ready for war also. We usually don't think of Alma as a warrior. He's a high priest, he's a minister, he's a teacher. But as the chief judge, he actually leads the Nephite army into battle with the Amlicites. One helpful reading note, Mormon is going to spend a lot of time describing battles, and one of the main ways that he'll do that is by referencing geography. Mormon is incredibly consistent in his descriptions, and because of that, it's possible to actually put together a Book of Mormon map. In fact, scholars have done just that. 
John Sorensen has a helpful map and BYU has created a virtual map that you can actually find at bom.byu.edu. I'm telling you all of this because these battle descriptions make a lot more sense when you have a map in front of you. But since this is a podcast, I'll do my best to describe the geography in a helpful way. Zarahemla, the capital Nephite city, is located in a river valley along the west side of a river called Sidon and is likely surrounded by highlands on three sides. Across the river from the city of Zarahemla on the east side is a hill called Imnihu. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Just south of Imnihu is a valley called Gideon, named after the Gideon who was killed by Nehor. And the river Sidon runs along the valley of Gideon, and on the other side of the river is another highland area called Minan. So you can imagine a square with Zarahemla, Amnihu, Gideon, and Minan forming each of the four points, and the river Sidon running right down the middle of it. Zarahemla and Minan are on the west side, and Amnihu and Gideon are on the east side. There are a few more Nephite settlements south of our square, but as you move south, you quickly get into the narrow strip of wilderness that separates the highlands of the land of Nephi, where the Lamanites live, from the land of Zarahemla, where the Nephites live. The battle between the Nephites and the Amlicites begins on Amnihu, remember that hill on the east side of Sidon, and the Nephites gain the early momentum to the point that the Amlicites begin to retreat. Mormon tells us that on the first day of the battle, the Nephites lose about half as many people as the Amlicites. Moving on to verses 20 through 38, we see that the first day wraps up with Alma and the Nephites driving the remaining Amlicites south. The Nephites pitch their tents in the valley of Gideon, and Alma sends spies to figure out what the remaining Amlicites are planning on doing. The spies, Zerum, Omner, Manti, and Limher, discover that the Amlicites have linked up with the Lamanite army that has come into the land of Minan. They also find Nephite families fleeing toward the city of Zarahemla. When Alma finds out, he leads his army back northwest to Zarahemla to head the Lamanite Amlicite army off and to protect the city. As the Nephite army is crossing the river to get back to Zarahemla, the Lamanites and Amlicites attack. The Nephites thought that they had momentum after the first day. Now things have shifted in a dramatic way. Mormon says that the Lamanite Amlicite army was as numerous almost as the sands of the sea. Who knows how many people that is, but you're looking at this overwhelming army that's this mixture of Amlicites and Lamanites. It had to have been terrifying to see. Now, there's something to be said for... A group of people who fight for their lives on their home turf. But Mormon tells us what changes the battle is that the Nephites, being strengthened by the hand of the Lord, having prayed mightily to him that he would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, therefore the Lord did hear their cry. Almost like a movie, Alma and Amlicite go head to head on the battlefield. The scene kind of reminds me of that moment in the Iliad when Hector battles Achilles and they're talking back and forth. And as you're reading it, you're kind of thinking, man, this is kind of a lot of talking for a, uh, a sword fight. 
But once again, here we get this fighting mixed with dialogue. In the middle of the fight, Alma cries out, O Lord, have mercy and spare my life that I may be an instrument in thy hands to save and preserve this people. Mormon seems to want to develop a theme that we first saw in the book of Mosiah. If you remember, one of the red flags with the Zenophites was that they stopped calling on the name of the Lord during battle and started boasting of their own military strength. We've talked about the different forms that Nephite idolatry take throughout the Book of Mormon, the worship of wealth, the worship of gender superiority, the worship of ethnic or possible racial superiority, the worship of chosenness, and we can absolutely add to that list the worship of military might. Mormon experiences this firsthand. The last straw for Mormon that led him to refuse to lead the Nephite army was when the Nephites began to boast in their own strength and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. And they did swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. Mormon is sensitive to this form of idolatry. And he seems to want to ensure that his readers understand that even though the Nephites in general and Alma in particular are in battle, that they haven't lost perspective. What's more, it's only after Alma calls on the Lord to make him an instrument in saving the people that he begins to overpower Amasai and is able to kill him. Alma and his guards then move on to the king of the Lamanites, presumably the same king who Aaron preaches to later on in Alma, or perhaps a lesser regional king. Alma and his guards quickly gain the upper hand, and the king of the Lamanites flees. The rest of this chapter is pretty graphic. The Nephites have killed so many Lamanites and Amlicites that they have to clear the ground by throwing dead bodies into the river. They drive the survivors into the wilderness northwest of the land of Zarahemla, called the Hermonts, that region was, quote, infested by wild and ravenous beasts, and it came to pass that many died in the wilderness of their wounds and were devoured by those beasts and also the vultures of the air. And their bones have been found and have been heaped up on the earth. And that completes the chapter. Chapter 3, we'll talk more about the surviving Amalekites, but for now the battle is over. This is a heartbreaking story. The Amalekites weren't strangers. There may have been brothers who fought against each other, cousins, friends, and neighbors. It didn't have to end up like this. Sometimes we read historical accounts of war as if the war was simply inevitable, but they rarely are. Alma's execution of Nehor may have been lawful, but was it the best decision? Maybe it was, but it seems like it, that if it was, it was the best of a lot of bad options. Yes, Nehor killed Gideon, but was there a different option that could have saved thousands of people who died in the Amlicite War? Were there points where Alma and the church could have de-escalated the situation? I'm really not trying to disparage Alma or the church of his day here, but I just wonder if there was another option. Frankly, I hope there was. I hope that no situation is so far gone that the only option is war, particularly civil war. There are some clues that even if Alma made the best available choice, that he was still uncomfortable with it. But we'll get to that.
Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.